Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. We're coming to you today in a special post-election episode, as we normally come every other Thursday, but obviously we had this huge election, as uh, we're still going, uh, going through right now. So we thought we'd have the conversation that everyone's having. Um, what the hell happened? Where does it all stand? What does it mean? Where do we go from here? And a lot is uh, uncertain. The historic uh, statement by the President of the United States defying the democracy and trying to squash elections. And so we're in really uncharted waters here. And obviously all of our uh, you know, anxiety and blood pressure and concerns are extraordinarily high. So we thought we'd just get together and try to make sense of it among ourselves and be able to share that with you. And hopefully that'll be um, helpful um, in this process. So for that conversation, I'm joined both by my co-host, Charlene Chang, and by our data doctor, Dr. Julie Martinez-Ortega. Charlene, you want to help guide us through this post-election day tangle? <laughs> yeah, I'll try. I'll try my best. But first of all, I just... I know we want to keep this special episode on the short side, but I'm the kind of person where I'm just, you know, really full of like a lot of emotions now and feelings. And I wanted to do a quick check in with both you and Julie um, just really quickly. How are you guys feeling or maybe a little recap of like your feelings last night and how you're feeling right now in this moment the day after? Yeah. So hi, everybody. Um, you know, I'm tired and kind of feeling a little fuzzy in the head, but I actually feel um, like we're in a good position right now. I'm not, I'm, you know, I don't like it that there's um, still uncertainty, but I, I feel like things are proceeding as we anticipated they would. And so emotionally, I'm actually okay at this moment. Yeah. And I think for me, it's been a bit of a roller coaster similar to, and this isn't even an analogy, it's actually right on point uh, in terms of those particular states, similar to 2018, right? Because we were so heavily invested in Stacey Abrams's gubernatorial race, Andrew Gillum's gubernatorial race in Florida, and had such high hopes that, you know, the country uh, has you know, only elected two black people governor ever, that we would actually win uh, at least those races. And so, it was clear right away those races were super close and it was going to be very hard and it wasn't going to be. Uh, so I was like, you know, disappointed um, that election night. And we had, remember we had this big election party and we had a lot of people together. And then uh, Susan turns to me, she says, um, we took back the house, you know, and I'm all like, oh yeah, right. <laughs> and so I think I had a similar reaction uh, last night. So at first I had, I don't know, bought the stories around how Florida was, you know, so the polling around Florida and we could win in Florida and then it wasn't panning out. So I was very disappointed because we had won Florida right off the bat. That had been a knockout blow. This thing had been over. Trump would be out. Um, and it, you know, we could all, you know, relax for once, but it was clear that wasn't happening. I was like, Oh man. And then Georgia also, then it was like, he wasn't ahead in Georgia. So I was very disappointed originally. Um, and then, the cross the some of the other results were not really as what we necessarily would have wanted or had hoped for, right? Because at one point, and also there's a whole other thing which maybe we should take up on the next pod about what does this say about this country that after four years of this man, still so many people are supporting him. So I was having some of that, 
And then I began to get more cautiously optimistic as the night kind of went up. But then when Arizona results came in, and that was super encouraging. We were texting with our friend John Laredo, who was, you know, he's very positive around what these results mean, what they're gonna, how they're going to hold up, and that, um, you know, one Maricopa County, and that, that means likely going to win the state. The state, you know, Fox and AP called the state for Arizona. And then, so I started to get more, then and I was stayed up till two, three, like wow. two in the morning or three in the morning is when Wisconsin tipped. And they had a whole thing that they, they were showing the person who had the ballot and they were they were showing her driving from Milwaukee to the county thing. She had a police escort taking her in there. Wow. Oh wow. And then when they posted the Milwaukee results, Biden took the lead. And that's where I felt like, okay, I think that this is tilting in our direction now. And then now I woke up this morning and then Biden's ahead. If we which is which is the other tactical thing else we can get to. But if we stopped counting now, which this crazy man in the White House wants us to do, Biden wins. Because he's ahead now in, in <laughs> states that have uh, 270 electoral votes. So this morning, I feel actually uh, much re- more relieved as well as optimistic. Yeah, and me seeing you, you posted a little bit here and there on social media that you were feeling more optimistic helped me feel a little calmer. Um, I was definitely on a roller coaster ride last night. I, the problem was I had a little hope for this scenario that you guys I was say you had a little too much to drink, but that's yeah. No, I only ended up having, I don't really drink anymore, but my husband opened a beer and we split it. <laughs> that was the extent <laughs> of our, 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 you know, you know, our, our drinking last night. And we, um, yeah, we had all sorts of screens up, but I, I think the challenge for me, I had a little quarter in my mind, the scenario of the landslide, the blowout, you know? So there was that far end of the spectrum where I was like, Oh, could be, you know, an early night and start celebrating early. Uh, but I, I guess it, it's like, it was definitely, it, I didn't realize how remote that was. And then, like you said, Florida started to come down. And then I think I swung the other way into like doom and gloom. Right. <laughs> Even though we knew that it was going to be tight and that the other scenarios were not based on Florida per se. But then it's all the, the closeness and the um, several, um, yeah, just a different kind of results, you know, starting were like predict you know um, numbers coming in my emotional roller coaster was just like it was just starting going down and I started getting you know more anxious and then um just a lot of the like the closeness of it also brought up feelings from 2016 but compounded in mm. that feeling of wow there are millions of Americans predominantly white but yes including people of color who after everything this man did and showed you know, himself to be truly who he is, decided to vote for him again. And apparently, you know, there are in some places more people voted for him. So that stark reality of like what, who, you know, many of us are in this country who are our, you know, compatriots who are like the the other citizens that we are in this nation with together. Yeah, it was sobering, definitely um, not the best feeling. And, but I went to bed still pretty nervous. And then this morning I was looking at the news and you're, you know, you're feeling, Steve, how you're, you know, feeling right now much more optimistic. And um, I've lo- been looking at some numbers and, and I feel a little bit better. So, but I'm still, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, not getting myself actually where you are, Steve, because I still have 2016 piece. By the end of the podcast, you'll be like dancing in the streets. I hope so. Okay. So, Steve, why, um, what do you like? 
I'm wondering from you, like I wanted to hear your take on where do you feel things stand now and what do you think is going to happen? And uh, just any other, you know, thoughts on like, why did certain things, certain states go the way they did or trending the way they are? Yeah. So just in terms of where they stand and it's, I was just, um, let's see if I could find the tweet. So Biden's campaign had a um, conference call with reporters this morning and um, they had their staff on and just the difference in the, the, approach between Biden's campaign and Trump's campaign, which is still, you know, always just spinning and all this. Biden's campaign lawyer in this uh, um, call this morning says, we're winning the election, we've won the election, and we're going to defend that election. And I think that that is where it stands. And so just in terms of the, of the, the core people, right, you got to win enough states' electoral votes to get to 270 electoral votes. Um, as of 9 a.m. West Coast time on Wednesday, New York Times has Biden at 227, Trump at 213, 98 remaining. Um, but Biden leads in Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And those add, add up to 270 exactly. And not only is he leading in Arizona, the Fox News of all places and uh, the Associated Press have called Arizona for Biden. He leads in Nevada and his lead shrunk down late at night, kind of just on trying to get to bed at two or three in the morning, shrunk down to like eight or 9,000 votes or something. Um, but well, actually just to step back, people don't understand what happened. So there's two dominant dynamics. We're taking an election in a, pandem in a pandemic. People are trying to like not get this virus and not die. The president of the United States doesn't care. And so on the one hand, people are like, well, I'm not going to go into polls. It's not safe. I'm going to vote by mail. And so right. the president of the United States has everything possible to destroy the vote by mail option, undermine it uh, to the extent of, you know, uh, dis you know, disrupting, if not dismantling the post office itself, and then telling his people to go vote day of. Don't do the mail thing. Go show up. So that's what happened. You have the early vote, the vote by mail is massively pro-Biden, and the day of vote is massively pro-Trump. And those are the dynamics that have been how the numbers are actually coming in. And their theory was that it takes longer to count the absentee. So they would try to get ahead in the counting in the day of voting and then run out and say, we won. Everything else is a fraud. Stop the counting. And so and that that's what was doing. <laughs> well, that's exactly what the president of the United States did last night or this morning. Yes. yes. Which is like historic. I actually stayed up and watched it, Julie. First, I switched over to a I, home I shopping. Did too. Uh, home shopping. That was my mom's. That was my mom's escape. I showed up to a uh, home and garden channel, and um, I was like, I can't watch this man. And then I was like, Oh no, this is actually important. I need to. And it, I got chills when I was watching him say, "This is we're not going to stand for this." And it was like this is the beginning of a dictatorship. Yeah. Yeah. And I was very concerned at that point, but it's particularly Arizona that has complicated their approach and completely thrown a wrench into their plans mm -hmm. because now yeah. their thing is stop the counting. So if we stop the counting, we win. Biden's ahead in Arizona. He's ahead in Nevada. He went ahead in Wisconsin and he went, a, and, and he went ahead this morning in Michigan in all of those States. What's outstanding is still largely the pro-Biden vote. Nevada was close at the at late at, you know late at night, but what's outstanding is the is the mail vote that was so heavily pro-Biden. So when they get back to counting that, his lead's going to go back up again. 
Scott Walker, the former Republican governor, well, he's still the Republican former governor of Wisconsin, was tweeting out this morning that Biden's lead is very hard to overcome in Wisconsin. And then in Michigan, you've got the Democratic cities, which have yet to even come in, but he's already ahead even without them fully in. So structurally and tactically, it's kind of a checkmate for Trump and his stupid little plan. And so their plan was to try to focus on Pennsylvania and stop the counting and rush to the, they control the state legislature there and rush to the, the courts to try to block it and steal it. But we don't need Pennsylvania now. So that's where I particularly feel we are at 270 without Pennsylvania. And it looks like if they do count the votes that we will actually win Pennsylvania as well. So all of that seems pretty clear. Different um, analysts and writers, Dave Wasserman, who we've, we've referenced before, um, with Cook Political Report, he shares that analysis. Um, so I feel, and, I, and then just the tone and the approach of Biden's folks versus the deception, which has been Trump's hallmark. I feel that Biden has won this election. Yeah, that's great. I, Steve, just one thing to, to comment on. Uh, I think Arizona getting called when it did and by Fox News of by all Fox the networks was just that threw their plan just up in the air. Oh, Trump I, is apoplectic yeah. about that. Yeah. And I yeah, watched so many the, um, and the, even the anchors, their, their hosts were just they could not deal with the, the idea because they realized how much it messed up everything they were going to try to do. I I think, you know, what they had imagined um, the way the evening would go, right? Because once Arizona was in our column, it it made Pennsylvania less critical yep. to a Dem win. Yep. And that I think is, um, you know, there'll be lots and lots of ink spilled over. Well, I guess they don't spill ink anymore, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> lots of bits on the computers, um, you know, uh, spent uh, just discussing the why and the, uh, and I, you know, I imagine someone's going to get fired over there, <laughs> but good for them. <laughs> and Julia, Steve, I want to um, keep us on track here. I wanted to ask you both real quickly, your takeaways and thoughts on Florida and Texas. You were warning about Texas before the election, Julie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, so I'm, as most of y'all know, I'm from Texas. I'm from San Antonio. My whole family's still there. And, um, you know, I think Texas has been making us, you know, steady advances toward becoming purple and really manifesting, um, you know, the the realities of its demographic changes electorally. But it's still in that process of moving in that direction. You look at a place like Arizona, where it took over 12 years to get to the point that it, yeah. you know, that it's at now, where it's actually flipping. Right, Virginia you know, as well. Don't just happen out of the blue. Um, and so I, I was actually, I posted a few things last night saying we should just congratulate ourselves for everything that happened in Texas. The fact that, you know, it is definitely purple now, um, considered a battleground, even, you know, spoken as a place where you might want to spend money. Uh, you know, all of these are things that are important. I haven't yet checked to see what the state house numbers look like. There was a hope that there could be some um, rebalancing happening there with Dems taking charge, but I'm not sure where that's ended up at this point. But, but the fact that Texas was even being talked about was a huge victory. And I feel like, you know, in some ways, uh, I don't want people to feel disappointed that it didn't flip because that, you know, just, we, it's like we skipped all these steps of being happy that we right. got to, to that point. And then in Florida, I had a lot of the feelings you were mentioning um, 
earlier, Charlene, about just sort of saying, God, I live among people who feel this way. And it's kind of scary, right? But it was even uh, worse because, you know, from what I've seen thus far, my quick analysis of Florida, it was Miami-Dade that messed up so much of the state because the other counties actually came in, from what I can tell, as we had expected. But um, uh, Miami-Dade... And the, you know, very large Latino community there just really fell for the the traps that the um, the Trump folks. Right. Well, it's not just them. traps. And actually, let, let me just jump in on that. And I think that I want to make and maybe this is what we should take up more fully in the, in, the, in the next pod. But what's very clear here and it has profound implications for the future of politics. Oh, and I and I want to uh, we should link to both the the final pre-election Twitter thread by Ron Brownstein, and I think his final article laying out what's actually happening here. And it really is this divided country mm-hmm. and a fight over the definition of what this country is. Mm-hmm. So what happened electorally is that Trump and his people and his team and his devotees came out in mass to defend their leader. And yep. that is the fundamental dynamic. So they're the ones who they have, that's had this large day of turnout. I was watching one of the uh, channels last night was saying that Trump brought out 200,000 more voters than Romney did in Florida in uh, 2016. He brought out 250,000 more voters. And that's why this election was so close. That's kind of this overarching piece. He did bleed support. He did lose a lot of support from white college educated voters, but he made up for it by going and getting more conservative, mainly white non-college um, uh, educated people who are his mm-hmm. passionate base. And he, they went and they found them and they mobilized them. And that is why this election is so close. And that's what happened in Florida. And that's what happened in all these states. And that's why Arizona, we always thought was so strategic because they didn't have a lot of same day voting. Most of the voting was by mail. And so that's where we thought they, we were more immune from both the chicanery as well as the, that, that day of mobilization piece. And they also have a very low share of non-college educated whites. So fewer people that were even in that demographic. Yeah, thanks. um, That really helps me understand. And I remember, um, I think we talked about this in a previous podcast, Steve, you know, people at one point worried that there would be these whites who would come out of the woodwork for Trump. And you had said, well, there's not really that many in the woodwork to, you know, come out of, but it looks like in Florida, there was just enough. Well, and all over the, all over the country, it, it, it played itself country. out. In all, and, yeah. and that's what Ron Brownstein's analysis talks about, is that Trump has been, I mean, he's like, you know, uh, perplexed and, and, you know, cannot believe that Republicans are going along with this because of the long-term price that they're paying in terms of sacrificing their brand by going against the younger, the more diverse uh, populations. But he was talking about how they're trying to squeeze larger and larger margins out of a shrinking sector of the population. And so, but if you look at Trump as only caring about himself, which he does, then it makes more sense. But it does sentence the Republican Party to long-term danger by completely setting it in opposition to what is going to become and is becoming the larger uh, sector of the population, which is also why I think we should feel good about Texas, right? Texas is clearly trending our direction. And mm-hmm. so 2022, 2024, this, what we were on the cusp of this time, we can actually achieve in the, next, in the coming years. All right, great. Let's talk Senate races. Yeah, so that was a big disappointment, but I think it's tied to this point, right? So Trump 
brought out all his people and they voted for his Senate people. And so that the races that we had hoped to win, you know, so the headline is that it's, it's, it's difficult at best now for Democrats to take control of the Senate. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. And so we're down to, uh, so we need a net pickup of, we needed to pick up four seats. And so we picked up two, Arizona and Colorado. And then there the question of where the, off with Georgia. Well, right. What, but, and hopefully, so that's what I'm saying. We're not figuring out where can we get two more. And so Reverend Warnock is in a runoff in Georgia. So that's definitely a super high priority, but we still need one more. And so it's either our only, our main hopes, the ones that are undecided are North Carolina, Maine, and the other Georgia race, one with John Ossoff. And the main race does not look that great. I mean, Susan Collins is ahead fair amount. I haven't seen deep analysis of North Carolina. The Republican is ahead, but because of this imbalance between the, the more Democratic early vote versus the, in, the day of, it's not inconceivable to me, but I have to see more numbers that, we, that he could narrowly squeak, uh, squeak by the Democrat, uh, Cunningham in North Carolina. And then the other is in Georgia, can we pull uh, Purdue down below 50%? And so that is the, and he's like at 50.7 or something like that. Um, uh, and, and that's so, just because in Georgia, they have this odd rule where anybody who doesn't get 50% has to go into a runoff with the second place finisher. Yes. And so that, if we, if, if we can pull him below, and, and a lot of the votes that are 50.7 as of recording this, um, and there's still a lot of Democratic vote out in the in the surrounding Atlanta counties. Um, so if he gets pulled below 50, then we've got two runoffs, January 5th, and that those two seats would then decide control of the Senate. So that's where we stand at one point in this like landslide notion. People are like, well, Kansas and Alaska and you know South Carolina, all these things are in play, hmm. but the Trump forces came out in force and said, no, we are going to try to preserve this country as is and as we want it to be is to the best of our ability. And would you say like going in, you thought that, you know, either one of you can answer that you felt like the Senate races would be, quote unquote, a bit easier to get. And this this result, what's what's resulting, what we're seeing is either surprising or like kind of was unexpected. Or Not for to, me. I mean, my, my gut check was that the Senate was going to be harder than the presidential. Yeah, it's funny. I had the same gut check, but I think that the the conventional wisdom was was different. The conventional yeah. wisdom was like, oh, yeah, yeah, Democrats are going to win. They could win up to like eight seats, et cetera. Wow. But I always felt like I'm looking at these seats. I'm not quite sure how confident I feel about getting the four. All right. So wanted to just give you guys a chance, like any final feelings on lesson learned takeaways. I know we've kind of touched a lot upon that already and maybe just what to watch for next key things to watch. Yeah, actually, well, I do have some meta thoughts. You'll be shocked to hear. Um, (laughs) Yes. But can we just spend a a couple minutes because there's lots of commentary and opining about what's going on with Latinos. And so since we have our resident Latino, um, who's from Texas as well. So Latino, you know, Trump did do better among Latinos, both in uh, Florida and in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. And so there's lots of kind of like, what does this mean? Blah, blah, blah. So Julie, I wanted to hear your thoughts as somebody yeah, who. 
this selection might finally end the need for us to run around saying Latinos are not a monolith. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe that'll be the one good outcome here. Um, you know, I actually think that we can say in total, Latinos, you know, performed well for Democrats. There was, you know, really good turnout numbers in several different places. Um, you know, more will come out with the analyses, but I think our shares are going to have gone up of the votes within certain states. And, um, you know, they went in and voted for Dems in a number of these places that made a huge difference, Arizona probably being the most important one right now. And then in Texas, even though, you know, we obviously didn't win the Senate or the presidential there, um, you know, really that Latino, Mexican-American primarily uh, vote there is what made it a tight race. The fact that it wasn't called when we went to bed last night was like, woohoo. And that was because of those Latinos. So overall, I think, you know, we did a great job in terms of um, a lot of the work being done by so many of the C4 groups out there. Um, and, and I think, you know, Florida has some unique issues where people were much more susceptible to a lot of the socialism uh, claims and stuff. And I think there, you know, there'll be, a lot of analysis done on this, I'd imagine, but, um, you know, to what degree should we have confronted that more directly as opposed to, you know, focusing on the, the positive messaging and whatnot about uh, Biden? I think, um, you know, we'll have to figure that out. I think we have to first figure out exactly which Latinos did what in Florida, because my gut again tells me that the Puerto Ricans probably voted with us to the degree that we were hoping they would. Now we might not have uh, gotten the turnout we needed from them, but I think just that big distinction between, you know, Latinos who are concentrated in different parts of the country, hopefully is, um, you know, the awareness of those differences has been increased uh, by people who work in, electoral politics, let's hope, you know, so they're understanding Texas Latinos are mostly Mexican-American, Californians are primarily Mexican-American with a whole bunch of Central Americans thrown into the mix, you know, like these different trends that um, that impact on people's, you know, sort of where they come as a community to the whole electoral process. Um, you know, it just has a huge impact on on how the various messages from the campaigns are being received. And, you know, I, I think if you were just looking at a bunch of these states in the Southwest on their own, you'd say, wow, this was like an, you know, just off the charts here for Latino work. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, well, to, to this point about the, not a monolith, I remember, Charlene, we were writing the book, Brown is New White, and we were trying to figure out, we had this whole chapter on who is the new American majority. And we were trying to categorize the different um, constituencies and the different, you know, communities of color groups. And we're like, well, how... Uh, micro do we get in terms of uh, breaking down the Latino community? Do we get, That's you know, right. there's, like there's like 12 or 14 yeah. different subgroups. We include Nicaraguans, we include Guatemalans, that's right? That's right. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's definitely, that definitely played out in a big way in this election, right? It's very clear that Cubans in Florida are very different than Mexican-Americans in Arizona, right? And so that's important. But I think the, lar the larger meta point is the cultural incompetence of the democratic eco ecosystem and infrastructure. And so to not have the knowledge 
and that to not have people in decision-making positions who are controlling these massive budgets around where and how to allocate your money. Andrea Mercado out of Florida New Majority, she uh, uh, was you know, comp- you know, publicly s- stating yesterday about this late money that comes in, that comes in mainly for television, um, is not the best way to go about making progress. So you take, you take that reality, right? All this money comes in late, all it comes in for television when it comes in. Right, we remember the drastic how they did this report card in the Democratic Super PACs, and how they were spending tens of millions of dollars in Iowa on TV ads, and they could have been investing in community groups and organizers in Texas, in South mm-hmm. Texas, in the Rio Grande Valley. So, but the people who make those funding decisions don't have deep cultural competence, and so that has to be a major, major takeaway in terms of the future and where we actually go from here. And then I just segue into my kind of like meta thought is that it was interesting. I, I looked at my Facebook feed. I had two posts right one by another, right? So one of our friend, Amber Goodwin, um, out of Texas, who was very disappointed and very sad, you know, about how she, she you know, had gotten her hopes really high up and that worked, you know, butt off to try to, you know, get the vote out and trying to, you know, process that. Right next to her post was a post from John Laredo from Arizona. And John Laredo saying, uh, what happened in Arizona is the culmination. We, had, we started with a 10-year plan, and this is the culmination of our 10-year plan. Mm-hmm. And so that was very profound to me. And then if you look at, um, we should link to this in the show notes, too, the piece that Tram Wynn wrote after uh, Virginia won the, uh, all the different seats in 2019. Virginia's had a 10-year plan to mm-hmm. transform the population changes into political power. People, what, what happened in Orange County in 2018, how the Democrats went all the different seats, right? A lot of the different organizers and the progressive infrastructure there has been working for 10 years. And so that is my meta takeaway is that it's going to take 10 years to dig out of the damage of what this man has done as president and to be able to continue to turn what has been, um, what gives us the most promise into actual power in Georgia. It's another year. It's been almost 10 years. Stacey Abrams, I mean, I met Stacey Abrams in 2011 when she laid out her very sophisticated plan. That's what we have to do as a country now is that, and I think we can both pause to catch our breath and reorient our thinking that this is a long fight. The trends do remain in our direction, but it's going to take many years and that we should be proceeding in that fashion and look in judging um, our progress and how we proceed um, in that context. So that's my meta takeaway from where we stand and where we go from here. All right. And with that, I just want to say I'm really glad that we decided to do this special episode. Uh, Julie, did you have any final words? Uh, you're just reminding me of that um, the quote, how does it go? Uh, Power concedes nothing without a fight. And we shouldn't be surprised that these folks came out of the woodwork because they can see that, you know, we're on the go marching forward and the country has changed, is changing. And this is, you know, the, the natural reaction to that. It doesn't mean they're going to be able to stop us ultimately. Definitely not. (laughs) Yeah. That's definitely good to keep in mind. I just really always appreciate talking to two of you. It's like talk what they call talking off the ledge. I feel so much better already. (laughs) And uh, Steve, you want to close us out? 
Yeah, so um, as we were saying, this was a special episode uh, of Democracy in Color um, with Steve Phillips. And so we really hope that this was helpful and useful to you in terms of trying to give some real-time analysis. Um, you can follow us on uh, social media. You can get into our email list at democracyincolor.com. You can follow us on Twitter, um, at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker, support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier, recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, perhaps now more than ever, keep the faith. <laughs> <laughs>